Hello and welcome to Voices of the Industry, a podcast series bringing you leading industry voices who challenge thinking across transportation, infrastructure and cities. Welcome back everyone to the second part of our two-parter with John Larkinson of the Office of Rayon Road. We hope you enjoyed the first part. And in part one, we navigated through the intricate landscape of rail regulation. We explored the evolving role of regulators, dissecting challenges and dynamics shaping the industry of rail and road in the UK today. Now in part two, we're delving into more specific projects and decisions that impact rail infrastructure. Get ready for a deep dive into the intricacies of rail development and regulation in the second half of our discussion. I hope you enjoy it. Now let's get back to the chat with John. Yes, I, I, I suppose, you know, we, we deal with, or I certainly have dealt with, trying to help reform uh, change processes in the in the UK rail sector. Uh, and, you know, there's proposals just come forward from Great British Railways Transition Team la- uh, last week, I think it was, put some ideas forward. And I can just imagine if you're, I don't know, working in a local authority, part of local government, trying to develop a mobility hub, which brings together different sustainable modes alongside the rail network. And you think, I've got a scheme with Network Rail to introduce this create these things but now i've got to talk to an energy provider to be able to get the energy to that site you think oh oh no there's another set of processes that i need to go through so i just wonder how agile the uk plc will be in some form in in picking up with some of these things Yes, that's obviously a pretty big question to speak on on behalf of. I'm nervous if I speak on the behalf of the whole of UK PLC in that case. But if you take it from the perspective of an individual company, it is sometimes, I think, quite easy to criticise a big company like Network Rail or National Highways. I mean, I'm not short of people walking up to me saying, I tried to get Network Rail or National Highways or some part of Network Rail to do this, and they were wholly uncooperative. And we get quite a few, frankly, complaints uh, about that. But if you look at it from Network Rail's perspective, sometimes, actually, people, organisations, want Network Rail to pay more into something. So if you look at schemes where uh, I've been told, well, Network Rail just hasn't cooperated with this at all, sometimes they haven't, and I'm not saying Network Rail are perfect, they're certainly not, but often we find that they have but they just haven't done what some people wanted them to do. So they haven't added some extras onto a scheme, which frankly they didn't really have to do, but people wanted them to. And ultimately, as, as a regulator, we, we, we can't always be in the business of giving everybody what they want. Network Rail has a fixed budget. It has licenses. You know, it's bound by license. It has targets to meet and it, it, to make. And it, it can't just be a sort of general distributor of resources, no matter how popular that might, that might be. So that, there, is a, there is just a bit of a balancing act here, I think, for Network Rail, National Highways and, and ourselves. Understood. Understood. Conscious of time, let's, let's turn some some questions which are definitely in your wheelhouse, they would say. So rail reform, John. The UK government proposed through the Williams Rail Review some significant reform of the rail sector, most significant probably in the last 30 years because of its well reported failings and weaknesses of the current structure. And I'm just wondering how much is the ORR a contributor to the challenge that the industry now faces? And what roles do you think it will play to support improvement in industry outputs and effectiveness going forward? If there is this major reform agenda underway, 
How do you see that the ORR will play its part in that? Yes. So, as you say, Mike, this has been going on for for some time, the debate over rail reform, and particularly the introduction of legislation to set up a new entity, Great British Railways. And the the, the idea behind that was to be, effectively, as the government said, to bring track and train together. We would have one organisation, an umbrella organisation that was responsible for track and train, uh, whereas at the moment we have much more of a split between what you might call the infrastructure and and the train operators. And as part of that, we we did have a, a long discussion with government about what 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 that would mean for the, the Office of Rail and Road. What would that mean for us? What would we need to do differently? And so what, what was agreed at the time was that if this organisation was set up, Great British Railways, the government wanted to have our role expanded so that we were basically a regulator for the whole of Great British Railways. So whatever Great British Railways did, one regulator would sit above it. And so you'd have the government, you'd have the regulator, you'd have Great British Railways. Um, and that's that would that would have required us to make some quite big changes. We would have needed to change some of our capabilities. You know, we do need to take on capabilities which we don't don't currently have. So we, we had an agreement to, to to do that. But in practice, uh, the legislation isn't going to be introduced in this parliament just for sort of wider listeners. It, it may well be that it's coming, um, but in the short term, it, it's not. But I suppose the only thing I'd add on that is that it, it does raise a sort of, in, in, in regulatory terms, what, what's often forgotten is which organisations are outside Great British Railways. Because yeah. as a regulator, we, we're, the, what, what people want out of a regulator is that impartiality. They go to a regulator because they're looking effectively for someone who would, would take a sort of rational public interest view. And so I do find that sometimes it's presented as if, Every rail company or infrastructure manager or whatever in Britain is inside would be inside Great British Railways. They wouldn't. It, all, all, all private freight companies would be outside Great British Railways. And hence, from from my perspective, it is it's, it is what I can do to support the government in its reform, setting up Great British Railways, oversight and assurance around Great British Railways. But I also need to think about well, what what protection do the freight companies need? Because from their perspective, they're just facing an even bigger monopolist. So if you're if you're a relatively small company, you, you might reasonably ask, well, what, what's the regulator going to do for me? And that's led to some actually quite, quite interesting challenges uh, in terms of we, we have a performance incentive systems in, in Britain. So if the infrastructure manager causes more delay minutes, the train operators get payouts and things like that. And the government wanted to switch off those mechanisms for companies inside Great British Railways, which is issues fine, and that, that will be done. But actually, the freight companies outside of Great British Railways wanted to keep them. Because they didn't trust Great British Railways, so for me, there's there, there is a again there's that, that sort of balancing act. We we can't just look at from one part of the of the sector. We have to try and find in this case a hybrid system where we have one system for companies inside GBR and a system for companies outside GBR. And I, to me, that's a you know, that's a pragmatic way of of, of dealing with the uh, an, an evolving situation. And you talked about the new capabilities. So if you become that regulator for Great British Railways in due course, that new capability, which will be, I, I guess, looking after train, the GBR's role with regard to train operators. Do you see, I'm, I'm intrigued with going forward, going looking back, what else might change in the way the ORR operates, the way it addresses its mission? If the whole industry is going to be, the intention is to do culture change, adopt automation, deliver more seamlessly and better almost, and, and be a, you know be more strategic perhaps in, in the way it works. How does the ORR change the way it operates as well as its scope of operation, if you want? 
Yes, we well, we we looked at this. We had um, there was quite a debate of what you might what, what was called a sector target operating model. What would the whole rail industry look like after reform? And then for each organisation, its own target operating model. So one of the things we we did was to look at how we would organise ourselves. As, as you say, exactly how would we work? What what, what would we need in changes in our culture? I, at this stage, that's that works never, because this reform isn't going ahead. That that work's never sort of been discussed in detail externally. It's, it's effectively sitting there, and it's, I think it's probably inappropriate to to talk about it when, until we know the reforms are are, are are going ahead, which we will just have to wait for. But uh, but um, yes, we 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 have we we've debated that we we would need to shift in in certain ways. We'd, we'd have to need to have slightly different relationships with government, probably. There'd be uh, maybe sort of changing some of the lines around accountabilities in certain areas, and that would drive different behaviours, maybe in governance, etc. So, you know, the, the, quite a lot of work did go into this at the time, and if and when it was required, with all this would um, this would all be sort of rebooted, and we would we would be coming back to it. Understood. And it's, Stephen and I both had had a role to to uh, support Network Rail in some readiness, I guess, for the, the the next control period, which we're just about to end. The, yourselves, the ORR, gave your final determination at the end of October, uh, uh, and there is still, you know, some people believe the the determination is perhaps better than it might have been, but there is still quite a healthy challenge to Network Rail to deliver efficiency and improve outputs, etc. And one of the aspects that they were looking at was market-led and whole industry initiatives to try and help them better improve confidence around cost efficiency and where savings might become. And uh, I'm wondering how, when we don't know the answer, we are going to have to think laterally, radically, perhaps, or innovatively, creatively. How does the RRR support that creative agenda to try and realise the benefits? Certainly, in terms of something like whole industry performance, we the, the split between ourselves, effectively, with look after Network Rail's performance and government focusing more on the train operators. Uh, there is no doubt that we could we could all, and I'm including the RRR, this all ourselves and government do better in terms of joining up on that with or without uh, rail reform. We we do we just uh, there's, there's a slight sort of danger that you 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 sort of wait for for something to happen. You know, well, I know there's there's not a lot I can do until rail reform comes on, and it, and it's just not true. And, and it it almost allows you, it's, it's a little bit of a, a little bit of a cop out. But if you've got an infrastructure manager on a five year planning cycle and train operators on an annual business planning cycle, and you want to ask the question, how are we planning for year two performance? You've got a problem, but that's a solvable problem in a sense. It's a solvable problem without legislation. And so, the, the, it just com- just come back to directly to your question. The the thing that we, we particularly want to focus on at the moment is okay. Let's now go back to what we can do without legislative change. It cannot be that effectively that everything has to stay the same as it is now. It, it just doesn't. And so, and, and hence in that that whole industry performance area, that that's certainly something which we believe we can do quite a bit more on with government that we're doing now, and we, and we are in active discussions about that. So that's the number one priority of most users: the performance of the system. Are you know, in, colloquially, is, is your train on time? Yes or no? That's what people w- want to see us us to do, and that's what I believe we we should we should be focusing on. Stephen, any any reflections from the whole industry market-led work that you were doing and, and perhaps, you know, the one thing that you might say that Network Rail might ask John or if they haven't already asked or anything that you think might be the a differentiator to unlocking things? 
it's a radical idea. I mean, you know, obviously Noble Rail has very much been asset condition led, and this going to something which is more market led. I think everyone needs to recognise is 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 a significant change, and, and it was what was driving that change was potentially different use of the network by the consumers, by train operators. So, I mean, I think it's still a little bit early, and I, you know, I go back to one of John's points about five-year network rail and one-year train operating business plans. I do wonder whether part of the the answer is, is better alignment between those, which would allow perhaps some of these concepts and new ideas to be investigated in a bit more of a joined-up way. I, I think I think it's, that's a really good point, that, that there probably is more work to do there because I won't mention any names, but I, I did try a, a brief test on people about what do you think is meant by the market-led proposals? And I would say there was quite a wide range of answers in, in terms of what people actually thought it would mean in, in practice. Part, part would depend, I suppose, on, maybe on what they hoped it would, it would, uh, it would, it would mean. But um, it is an area worth focusing on more because we, we are, as a railway in Britain, we are short of money. We have lost close to something like £750 million in revenues from, from industrial relations problems since uh, last summer. That is a phenomenal sum. Our revenues are way down anything they were in COVID, and, and hence the, the idea that we shouldn't look at how to boost revenues and all is, is, must clearly be, be wrong. But what it actually means in practice, and also the, the, the politics around it, because sometimes, what, what, depending on how you, what your view of these proposals are, if you're saying, well, actually, we need more higher revenue generating trains on the network and fewer lower generating trains revenue generating trains on the network now, that's that's a profound political choice i know that's not what always people mean about it and some of it could just be about giving people more visibility i, I remember um, i know netrail often say well this is partly just about making sure engineers realize that they're about to spend 40 million pounds on renewing this bit of the network which you know generates literally a couple of million pounds in revenue a year or something like that. Is, is that really essential? Not, not that don't do it, because it might be necessary for safety reasons, but, but you know, is it really essential? I think that's quite a good discipline, actually. But it, it, so it depends, as Stephen was, I think, was saying, that it depends how far you take some of these things. Because if it's about which trains go on the network, well, actually, that, that's entirely under, almost entirely under government's control today. Those decisions could be decided now. No, no legislation is required to do it. Uh, franchisers decide, the franchise operators operate the vast majority of trains in the country, and you could sort of change that with no major structural change in it at all. But, but, and I think that takes us to a point that eventually you, you sort of go beyond analysis, and th- these, are, these are really difficult political choices. And in, in a sort of relatively densely populated country where with lots of conurbations where people rely on, on networks, on the rail network, and also with in, increasing, you might say, interest at a more devolved level about relationships between different parts of the country, et cetera, that these are actually big political questions that they're, they're way beyond just analysis. And I, I think the idea that if you, you know, if, if we set up a new Great British Railways company, you, you could just implement those sort of changes almost without political oversight. I just find that frankly a little, a little bit unlikely. Certainly, I have extensive dealings with MPs. I mean, as, a, as a, an independent regulator, I, we are ultimately accountable to Parliament. 
Uh, I can be called in front of parliamentary committees, and I'm, I, 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 I do get called in front of committees. I meet lots of MPs, and at the, at the local level, the, these things really, really matter. <laughs> I think one of the challenges is how those are big questions, as you certainly say, and they're probably multi-generational or multi-parliament, perhaps. So how do we help decision makers navigate what are electorally sensitive topics and choices? Yeah, uh, yes, absolutely. And uh, there has been some good work done uh, in the industry of setting out some of those choices. Because, yeah, if you don't put the options on the table, you're quite right. How, how would any politician know what they were choosing between? So I do think some good work's been done there, and and I know that more more could be done. But generally speaking, politically in in Britain, that there's often quite an extensive debate about relatively small variations in train services around the country. So it, it depends, I suppose, when people say market later, how how big are you planning to go here on this? And and, and going back to the point we discussed, what, what exactly does it mean? Uh, is, is it means is it indicative just to, trying to give you a pointer or actually saying it's a really big driver of, of strategic change? That that would that's a different way of looking at it. It's a very good segue to my next question. I can't let you get past without asking you a question about HS2. So the government has decided not to proceed beyond phase one of the new high-speed line HS2 and is cancelling phase 2A and 2B. So the service network won't extend beyond Birmingham. John, what's the ramifications for you? You can express an opinion on the HS2 decision if you wish, but what's the ramifications for enhancement, development and delivery, perhaps on the conventional rail network, given that decision? Because uh, it, it has ramifications. Yes, it, yes, it does. Uh, I mean, the, the decision on HS2 is a, is a political choice and, uh, and it's, we, we don't have any involvement in those political choices. So I, I, won't, I, won't, I won't comment on that. But, but So it is a ramifications, which I think we, we do need to have a view on. And, and there are, it's interesting that a lot of people perhaps naturally are focused on what, what else could you do with the money in, say, building new stations or uh, electrifying parts of the network or, or things like that. So I think, again, there's perhaps the more public facing, you know, frankly, frank, sort of glamorous schemes. And I can entirely see why people are, are, are interested in that. But go, going back to, well, okay, that, and some of those, again, are political choices. But go, going back to, well, what, what, what do you expect of a regulator here? We just need, again, to look at the existing network. And where we find ourselves, without going into that, I'm trying to understand some sort of detailed geography of, of, of this, where we find ourselves is now with a, we have a, a route running from London north, heading up, up the sort of central western side of Britain, heading up to Scotland, or we've got a west coast main line in, in, in effect. And you've got sort of a southern bit of that, which is, is going to have a high speed line running alongside it, and then the rest of it won't. And that raises some, some quite big issues in terms of capacity as, as, as trains come off the high-speed line and have to join what's sometimes called the conventional network or whatever you want to call it. There, there are now quite clear issues around capacity and depending on the level of capacity that can be generated choices. And, and that's an area where network rail now are doing, along with along with high-speed two and, and, and others, are doing, I think, some quite really important and essential work to, to look at that. I, it's, you know, again, probably a bit less glamorous than some of the, some of the schemes people are talking about, but that, that's an imperative also for us, what happens at Euston Station, there's quite a controversy about what exactly happens around the main the main station in London and, and an intermediate station at Old Oak Common and quite what, what sort of role these stations are serving in the new world and how, how they fit in with the conventional, particularly Old Oak Common, how this fits in with conventional services. And the, these are real, it's real sort of nuts and bolts stuff 
now for, for the, the, the rail network. So they're, they're probably more of our, our areas of interest than, than perhaps some of the big enhancement schemes you, you refer to. Yeah. I mean, do, do you think it has ramifications or repercussions for how you will monitor the beginning years of CP7, for example, that you might, that, you know, Network Rail may say, hang on a minute, we, we're not, we can't, we shouldn't proceed with that renewal until such time as we know it isn't a hunt enhancement. But at, the, at, this, at this stage, and it, it may be that I changed my mind over time, at this stage, I don't think so, not, not, in, the, not in the early stages, if only for the reason that it may take some time to, to get decisions uh, on, on what we need to do there, because as you, as you, as you implied there, a decision is almost certainly going to, well, it will cost money. And uh, there are plenty of other claims on government uh, funding. We've got an election next year, uh, or, or, almost certainly. Both political parties will, will have their own, all political parties will have their own spending priorities. So I, I suspect there's some way to go there. Uh, and there's expectations that some money might be spent on other schemes around the country. So I, I don't actually think might, we've probably even got to the starting line of, of, of that debate. Uh, I just think that it's going to take some time. A lot of options have been looked at before, and I don't recall any of them being particularly easy as options. So uh, I think we've got some way to go. And I, and I don't I don't at the moment see it having a, a major impact on the early years of, of the next control period. The, the only thing that's worth pointing out is that there's always, always an assumption, well, you know, surely Network Rail could find the money from somewhere type uh, question. Whenever you've got a big company, especially a company spending more than £10 billion a year, there's some people sure that they can find a bit more money from somewhere. One of the features of the financial settlement for the next five years is that the risk funding, well, not only has it been badly affected by inflation, as indeed has happened you know, across the world in many sectors, but the, the risk, by because of very, fairly tight funding, the risk funding is actually quite low relative to the size of the, of the business and spend and indeed the risks. So there's not some, there's not a sort of big, big fund sitting there waiting to fund you know, major works there, so I, I think we're in, in the sort of quite a lot of analysis to be done. Then some, no doubt, as ever, quite quite tough prioritisation to be done. Okay, thank you. Uh, before we go to some quick fire questions, Stephen, any any reflection or question that you might have for for, for John at this point? Yeah, I, I mean, I, I guess just looking forwards with, with all the changes that have come in, what what do you see as is the biggest challenge going forward, John, in your role? The, the, the challenge, uh, what, from my experience, and this is just based on my own personal experience, the, the challenge is, is always for the organisation to stay relevant. Uh, and I think you could look at other sectors of the economy where organisations have been perceived not to say, stay relevant in changing circumstances. And I think we have demonstrated repeatedly and into the way, the way we've changed our role over time, the way we flex. You know, we, not that many years ago, we were regulating a, a private company limited guarantee. Then we moved to regulating a, a, a virtually nationalised industry. So you, you have to adapt. You, you, you have to stay relevant you you have to look at the problems around you and be part of a solution to those problems rather than just saying well we're the regulator you know we do it this way and uh, and good luck to everybody else and and certainly while i'm in this job i am absolutely determined that we will continue to change continue to evolve with the aim of staying relevant so we, we can serve the, the public interest and hence the users and other systems and and taxpayers right now, conscious of time, John, I've got some quick fire questions. I don't know whether the answers are going to be quick fire or not, but uh, let me try. Let me try these. I've not done this before. Is effective regulation an art or a science? 
it's quite a bit of art to it, I think. But obviously, there has to be some science to it. But I, I think particularly when you've got a, a lot of a public sector environment, I suspect there's probably a slightly higher degree of art. What's the biggest evolution in rail regulation you've seen since rail privatisation? I, I think just in terms of the functioning of the, the regulator, it goes back to the discussion we had earlier about bringing together the health and safety elements of regulation with the economic regulators. I know, I know it's not something which sort of permeates the public consciousness, I don't think, and there's no particular reason why, why it should. But in, in terms of just the difference those bring, I, I think that was pretty profound. The other one was that when network rail effectively moved into the public sector. I remember, I remember people distinctly remember the time some people saying, well, you know, it's, it's, it gets a lot of money from the public sector anyway. So just so now it's, now it's a sort of nationalised industry. I can't see any change. I mean, what, what did it mean? It, it meant that network rail will be consolidated into the public accounts. As soon as you are consolidated into the public accounts of a government, your life changes dramatically overnight. You are subject to processes, procedures that you never saw before. NetRail now run effectively as a full, sorry, an extra set of accounts. Uh, that, and I, that was one which I, I do think was massively underestimated in terms of the profound impact that that would have and is still having to this day. I sort of share that. It was a, a decision, but it took, I think it took two years before the the narrative or the rhetoric about the, the change was realised. I think, I, think, I think you're right. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that was looking back about rail regulations since privatisation. What would be the one thing you'd like to see emerge from rail reform? If legislation comes forward and the next government is up for rail reform, is there something you'd have on the, on your Christmas list? What would you like? Well, I've stayed all the time on rail reform. We, we've trod a fairly careful line because effectively this this is government policy. And so clearly, clearly if the government changes policy on, on rail reform or you've got a, a new government coming in with a different policy on rail reform, I just have to preserve the fact that we, we are an independent, impartial regulator. You know, we, 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 we don't contest with, with government the policy direction. Whatever happens, though, I don't think at the moment anything gets round the fact that we, we are at the moment in, in a constrained funding environment on rail. And, and if that's not going to change then the need to prioritise will remain. And hence the, the importance of what you might call well-informed prioritisation. Uh, people understand the choices that are being made and why. I, I just don't see that going away in, in the slightest. It's, it's going to remain as, as, a, as a major issue. Right, last one. You might have you might play the same argument again. Given the National Infrastructures Commission recommendation that the government should replace TfL's annual funding with five-year settlements, would you like to take up a role overseeing TfL's efficiency and expenditure? That's actually a really topical question because for the first time ever, we about a couple of months ago, we, we did provide a report to, to TfL, the Department of Transport, Department for Transport and the Treasury in Britain. Uh, around the, the the cost of the capital program next year for TfL, we were asked to do this. The three organisations effectively asked us to do this. It's the first time we've ever done what you might call more of an economic role with, with TfL. We're, we're responsible just for particularly for international listeners. We're, we're responsible for health and safety on pretty much every part of the rail network in Britain. TfL runs a lot of the tube trains, the underground trains, and we do health and safety on on that. 
as well. But we've never had a role beyond that. And, and some of that came out of a more general discussion about the future funding framework for, for TFL. Uh, because like, like all funding frameworks in any, in any, any walk of life, these things are hotly debated. And, but the question was, the question we, we has been some discussion about is that would TFL, the government in general, be all, both all, all be better off under a, some kind of regulatory environment than the current environment? Would, would that actually be better for the organisations, for, for the end users of the system or not? And so we have had some some conversations about that. It is, it is really, really interesting because there's a different political structure for TFL. There's a, there's a separate mayor, uh, a separate assembly. So there's different structure, but, but we, we, there has been some work done on that. And and I think it was just interesting, this literally a couple of months ago, we, we, we sent a report about our, our cost analysis for, for TFL and the government. So I, I don't know what's going to happen and ultimately it'll be a decision for the government and for, for TFL. But as, as I've, yeah, we, we, again, we're, we're sort of, we are we're here to serve in that sense, and if, if we're asked to to do that, do such a role, then uh, obviously we we would we would we would do it. But I suspect there's there's quite a long go long way to go on discussions like that. You'd end up picking up new capabilities for buses and cable cars at least. Well, well in, indeed, well, one of the issues would be about when when we say transport for London, do, do we mean all modes? Uh, for transport for you know, exactly what would it cover uh, and, uh, and and so on. So yes, the, um, yes, and if that if that required whatever the decision would take, and we would have to look at our capabilities and also just a very different environment there. And also, we of course we have different models. But what, what exactly do we mean by sort of re- regulation, regulatory settlement? We we have a different model for national highways compared to network rail, and there, there are actually many different ways of cutting these models and something more more tailored to those precise circumstances of TFL and what the government's looking for to might be better than any of the current models okay right we are out of time i think Stephen, any last thought or reflection before we sign off i think thank you to john and you know a, a reflection of how important the, the the life and the role of the regulator is within industry but also to each individual consumer uses the transport system really does go to the heart of that thank you Yes, yeah, certainly. I, I, I'm taking away, John, the, the important role that the ORR is playing and wants to continue to play as that independent voice for different users. Uh, but I'm also taking away some some other things I've heard, which in our recent series that we were doing here in the UK on recalibrating Britain's railways was change is possible reform may or may not come and Great British Railways may not be the panacea solution. So it's important that energy is sustained and change is sought now, frankly, rather than waiting. So, John, thank you very much for sparing the time. It's been a, a great conversation. I didn't didn't think we would go as long as this, but we did. I could have asked more contentious questions of you, uh, like with, do you want to get back into health economics or not? <laughs> I, I suspect I've left it a bit late now, <laughs> Mike, you know, and I do enjoy working in, in railroad. But so I've really enjoyed it. Thanks very much yourself, Mike, and, and Stephen. It's been a really, really interesting conversation. So thank you. Uh, and this is you can find this podcast and other pieces of our Voices of Steer and Voices of Industry at steergroup.com. I look forward to uh, engaging with you again. Thanks very much, everybody.